Support has been provided by an independent educational grant from AbbVie, Amgen, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Genentech, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, and Sanofi Genzyme. CME for this podcast is available at AUA University, auau.auanet.org. Okay, everybody, we're going to go ahead and get started. Yeah, our, our first speaker is going to be uh, Ann Calvaresi. She's actually going to speak on prostate cancer. All right, so we'll move into the um, uh, tumor-specific uh, diseases, so starting with prostate cancer. I'm sure many of you have seen this, the uh, prostate cancer continuum. Um, so starting with the left-hand side, localized disease is treated with either radiation therapy and androgen deprivation therapy um, or surgery. Patients can have a recurrence, as evidenced by a rise in PSA, and then be started on androgen deprivation therapy and then progress towards a castrate-resistant disease and advanced systemic therapy. So we're going to focus primarily on the right-hand side of this continuum um, and looking at some of the uh, uh, agents that are used earlier in the disease process that have historically been used um, much later in the disease process. So starting with traditional hormonal ablation therapy, the GNRH agonists, their purpose is to stimulate the LH and the FSH from the pituitary gland to the testes. And for this reason, you can initially have a surge. It works kind of like uh, the home thermostat in your home. So uh, it's continuously sending the message to release um, the LH and the FSH, and eventually the testes will just shut off, kind of like your uh, cooling system in your home on a 110-degree day. Um, the most common agents in this class of drugs are luprolide. And if you're concerned about the T-surge, you can use a, an antiandrogen to block the T-surge. The GNRH antagonists directly inhibit um, the LH and FSH, so you do not see the surge with this class of drugs. Um, unfortunately, they're only given in one-month depot. The, uh, the GNRH agonists can be given in one, uh, three, four, and six-month depot preparations. Non-steroidal antiandrogens, this is where you might see them used with the GNRH agonists. Um, so these, uh, they block the binding of the androgen to the androgen receptor. Most common drug in this class is bicalutamide. Common side effects include LFT elevations as well as GI side effects. Orchiectomy you don't see so often any longer, and ketoconazole is typically used in more advanced stages of the disease. You can see here where the uh, agents take effect, so the GNRH analogs at the level of the pituitary, and the uh, orchiectomy and antiandrogens at the level of the testes. You can see a, a variety of durations with hormonal therapy. So in intermediate risk prostate cancer patients, when they're going to undergo radiation therapy, they're probably going to be placed on a duration of about six months. High risk patients who are going to go on to radiation therapy will be recommended to go on therapy uh, with ADT for 24 to 36 months. And then in biochemically recurrent and metastatic disease, you could see intermittent or continuous therapy, and outcomes show that there's not a huge difference with uh, intermittent or continuous treatment. This is probably one of my favorite slides when I'm counseling a patient who's starting on ADT. Um, while I, of course, don't show them the slide, I go through all of these potential side effects. I mentioned to them that they're probably going to get most, if not all, of these side effects. And rather than try to treat them after they take effect, maybe hopefully try to prevent some of them. So with the altered body composition and metabolic syndrome, I usually recommend that patients start on some type of physical exercise routine, both with strength training and cardiovascular exercise, as well as some type of um, 
relatively healthy diet. So um, I will usually refer them to the American Cancer Society website or the uh, American Heart Association website, and they both have pretty loose dietary guidelines, um, kind of like the old food pyramid. And I also recommend that patients kind of stay away from processed foods, usually shop on the perimeter of the supermarket. Um, arterial stiffness and cardiovascular morbidity are also potential side effects, so patients should be closely following with their PCP and also um, with a cardiologist if that's indicated. They're, of course, going to have loss of libido and erectile dysfunction, um, as well as um, emotional ability or depression. Um, and a lot of that comes from the ED that occurs as a result of the ADT. So if they're willing to address and, and um, treat their ED, um, it's probably a good idea. Patients oftentimes do experience cognitive decline. That's oftentimes more so seen in the patients who are long, on longer-term therapy, so suggesting some mental stimulation um, as well as um, a, a good sleep pattern, so same time to sleep, same time to wake, staying away from stimulants prior to bedtime. Most of these patients report some level of fatigue. Um, the exercise, the diet, and the good sleep-wake patterns can help there. And the osteoporosis and uh, skeletal fractures we'll get to in just a minute. Uh, additionally, patients are always, or most always, going to have some hot flashes on therapy. So we're limited as far as what our treatment options are for the hot flashes. We can go to SSRIs. Some patients will respond to acupuncture. There's also some anecdotal evidence showing that vitamin B6 helps with this patient population. So for maintaining bone health, um, these patients are likely going to have some decreased bone density. Um, we always say just like when women go through menopause. So at the very least, they should be on a vitamin D supplement as well as a calcium supplement. Um, so patients should also have a baseline DEXA scan, especially for patients who are going on long-term ADT. And in patients who are higher risk, like the elderly, smokers, alcohol users, and the thin and frail patients, you can consider an anti-resorptive agent like denosumab or zoledronic acid. These are strong agents, um, and they can lead to osteonecrosis of the jaw, so patients should have any dental work done that needs to be done prior to going on treatment. They should also have a routine dental exam. Uh, the purpose of these is to prevent and treat skeletal-related events and also prevent osteoporosis. Zoledronic acid. Its purpose is to inhibit the bone osteoclast or bone breakdown. For patients with bony metastatic disease, it's given monthly. Um, there are dose reductions for patients with renal impairment. And then the denosumab is another option. Uh, it promotes osteoclast and bone resorption. This uh, additionally prevents osteoporosis and also um, skeletal-related events. This additionally is given monthly for patients with bony metastatic disease. So recommendations from the NCCN in uh, 2018 for metastatic castrate-resistant, uh, I'm sorry, castrate-sensitive prostate cancer are ADT alone. ADT with docetaxel or ADT with abiraterone and prednisone for the uh, adrenal effects. Um, so pivotal trials that looked at, at these options, ADT plus docetaxel, the charted and stampede trials came out with um, some, some great findings. And um, the, I can't see the, pattern. the latitude and stampede trials additionally looked at ADT with abiraterone. So the charted trial looked uh, at ADT plus docetaxel and found improved outcomes with overall survival at 57.6 months in the ADT plus docetaxel versus ADT alone at 44 months. The STAMPEDE trial, very similar, showed 15-month improvement in overall survival for metastatic patients. Latitude looked at patients who were high risk, and to be high risk, they needed to meet at least two of the three criteria, including Gleason score of eight or higher, a bone scan showing three or more bony metastatic lesions, 
and uh, measurable visceral lesion. And so they were randomized to either ADT with abiraterone and prednisone or ADT with uh, placebos. And the outcomes, primary endpoints, so 38% risk reduction for death and 53% risk reduction for uh, radiographic progression-free survival in the patients who were on ADT plus abiraterone and prednisone. Uh, the STAMPEDE trial looked again at ADT and abiraterone, and they did find strong survival advantage at the three-year follow-up. So now we see where we are on, on the continuum uh, with castrate-resistant disease, and it might look a little bit more like this. So using some of the agents earlier in the disease process, those that are listed at the bottom, as opposed to later in the disease process, which has been what we've done historically. So for patients with non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer disease, that's defined as a rising PSA while castrate with negative imaging. And so the, the NCCN guidelines that were updated in April of 19, so just one month ago, less than one, one month ago, um, included close observation while maintaining ADT. Um, there was category one evidence supporting apalutamide, enzalutamide, or darolutamide in addition to ADT or considering a second or third line hormonal manipulation when patients were failing by colutamide, either with flutamide or nilutamide. So for the first time, the metastatic free survival was looked at in patients on the Spartan and Prosper trials, and this was looking at the use of apalutamide and enzalutamide. So apalutamide was approved for uh, non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. This is a non-steroidal anti-androgen, binds directly to the ligand-binding domain of the androgen receptor and prevents androgen receptor translocation, DNA binding, and androgen receptor-mediated transcription. Uh, watch out for hypothyroidism in these patients, a skin rash. I have seen this in the patients that we've put on it. Um, it usually subsides um, with just some uh, topical steroids. And then, of course, with anybody who's on ADT, there's concern for skeletal-related events. In the Spartan trial, uh, evidence was shown that um, there was a median metastasis-free survival of 40.5 months in the apalutamide uh, treatment group versus 16.2 months in the placebo. PROSPER looked at enzalutamide versus uh, placebo, both on ADT, and showed 36.6 months uh, median metastasis-free survival versus 14.7 months in the placebo group. The ARAMIS trial looked at the use of darolutamide in non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer patients and also showed a median metastasis-free metastasis survival of 40.4 months versus 18.4 months in the placebo. So NCCN guidelines for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, of course, maintain levels of castration. Consider a bone anti-resorptive agent, especially in those high-risk patients. And then for the asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients, consider cipulucicel-T. So cipulucicel-T is one of the few immunotherapies that has shown uh, improvement in patients with prostate cancer. It's, again, approved for non-visceral or asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients. In this patient population, uh, you need to consider using palliative radiation therapy for bony metastatic disease. And the mechanism of action is that T cells are harvested by leukophoresis. They're sent out, cultured and stimulated against PSAP and GMCSF uh, stimulating factor, reinfused three days later. It's given uh, six weeks total, three cycles, two weeks apart. The phase three data does show prolonged survival. However, there's not usually a, an improvement in PSA, so some patients are going to be concerned about this, of course. 
Of note, the most benefit was seen in the patients with the PSA in the lowest quartile. So these are all of the agents that we have available to us for treatment of metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer to date, of course, going back way, to, uh, way back to 2004. So for metastatic uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer, the first treatment that was approved in 2004 was docetaxel. The androgen receptor-targeted therapies were next approved. Those were abiraterone and enzalutamide, first approved for uh, post-chemo and then later for pre-chemotherapy patients. Abiraterone uh, for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer with or without visceral METs, both pre- and post-chemotherapy, as I mentioned. It's an androgen biosynthesis inhibitor, and it works by blocking the cytochrome CYP17 and then reducing androgen production. Uh, this needs to be given with uh, twice-daily prednisone. It does have multiple drug interactions, especially with antifungals, HIV medications, and seizure medications. The, uh, the follow-up for this patient, these uh, patients is very close and very careful, so especially with uh, LFT monitoring, electrolytes, and cardiovascular health. Dose reductions are an option for patients with mild or moderate liver dysfunction. It's contraindicated in patients with severe liver dysfunction. This is the follow-up schedule for patients, and as APPs, we are in a prime role to follow these patients uh, with regard to, to the follow-up. So you can see that they're coming in at least monthly, if not every two weeks, especially for those liver function tests. In the um, initial findings with the Cougar trial, so patients who had previously received docetaxel with metastatic prostate cancer, um, they were given, um, I'm sorry, overall survival was shown in the abiraterone group versus um, the placebo and as well as in, uh, improvement in PSA progression and improvement in PSA response rate. Later findings of Cougar released in the New England Journal of Medicine in January of 2013 showed that patients who were randomized to receive abiraterone plus prednisone or the placebo um, showed increased, or I'm sorry, improved radiographic progression-free survival as well as improved overall survival. So enzalutamide is approved for metastatic castrate-resistant disease with or without visceral METs. Uh, this competitively, competitively binds the androgens, it's an androgen receptor blocker, prevents the translocation of the androgen receptor into the nucleus. Uh, it's given 160 milligrams daily, and it is contraindicated uh, as, as, uh, as with um, abiraterone uh, in patients with severe hepatic impairment, as well as patients with head injury or history of a stroke. Also here, there are multiple drug interactions, uh, especially patients on warfarin or immunosuppressants. The AFFIRM trial uh, looked at patients on enzalutamide in prostate cancer after, after chemotherapy and showed in median overall survival of 18.4 months uh, versus 13.6. And the PREVAIL trial looked at enzalutamide in metastatic prostate cancer before chemotherapy, also showed radiographic progression-free survival at 12 months, um, which was much improved compared to the placebo, and improved overall survival as well. So when you're trying to decide which of the two agents, enzalutamide or abiraterone, to use, it becomes kind of like a teeter-totter effect. So patients with a lot of comorbidities, um, one comorbidity might sway you into one treatment versus another. For a long time, chemotherapy was thought to be ineffective in the treatment of prostate cancer. In 2004, docetaxel was approved for patients who were uh, metastatic and who were failing other therapies. And then in 2010, cabazitaxel was approved for patients who were failing uh, docetaxel. The radioisotopes are used for patients with bony metastatic disease, 
Radium-223 has shown overall survival benefit as well as symptomatic improvement, while the other agents have shown uh, palliation improvements only. The um, Al-Simca trial um, showed that patients who had received perhaps pre um, uh, so patients were looked at by both pre and post docetaxel, um, and they did show improved overall survival as well as delayed time to uh, symptomatic skeletal related events. So you can see we have a lot of options available to us as second line treatments for patients with metastatic castrate resistant disease. Also for patients who uh, fail to respond, uh, consideration for biopsy to evaluate for small cell or neuroendocrine tumor should be uh, considered. So where are we going with all of this? Great question. Um, so we can consider combination therapy with chemo plus androgen receptor targeted therapy, abiraterone plus an antiandrogen, or other combinations. There are, of course, some uh, treatments that are going to um, lead to adverse outcomes, and that's why these patients need close and careful follow-up. Sequencing is also a question, and the question is, is it, uh, when do we use it, um, and in which patients do we use it? There are other agents available to us that are still in study, uh, the PARP inhibitors, the new antiandrogens, and the list goes on. So why don't CTLA-4 and PD-1 monotherapy work in castrate I'm sorry, with metastatic castrate-resistant disease? Because prostate cancer has a low uh, tumor mutational burden. So you need a high tumor mutational burden for the immunotherapy agents to work. So we're talking about a cold tumor, meaning the T cells are not active. So these are a lot of different malignancies represented here. So in the center outlined in red is prostate cancer. You can see it's kind of low on the scale, meaning it has uh, fewer mutations. The ones with higher mutations are much more responsive to the immunotherapies, and those include uh, colorectal, lung, and melanoma, as you can see. So on the far left, that's prostate cancer, no, no active T cells. What you want to see is on the far right, where there are a lot of active T cells, you're going to see a great immunotherapy response in this, in this patient. So these are in trial, not yet approved, but of course promising. Um, uh, so vaccines plus PD-1, combination checkpoint inhibitors, targeted therapy, and PD-1, cytokines, and others. Additionally, we need to consider genetics. So we know that patients who have a family history of prostate cancer are at a much uh, increased risk of developing prostate cancer themselves. So in 2017, the Philadelphia Prostate Cancer Consensus Conference was held, and they looked at factors uh, and, and when to screen patients genetically. And they agreed at, at the minimum that patients who presented with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, regardless of family history, should be screened. So what we found, and while we've barely just scratched the surface of germ germline mutations in metastatic prostate cancer, is that there are germline mutations present in patients who have more aggressive disease. Brock the BRCA gene specifically is one of them. Um, we, of course, need a lot more work in this area, um, but there are germline mutations in at least 11.8% of patients with metastatic disease versus 4.6% with uh, localized disease. And so with genomics, what we know is that approximately 90% of patients with metastatic castrate-resistant disease harbor clinically actionable molecular alterations, that metastatic castrate-resistant uh, prostate cancer harbors genomic alterations, and that 23% of patients with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer do harbor DNA repair pathway aberrations and 8% germline findings. Additionally, uh, prostate cancer adapts to the castrate microenvironment. We see that when we put somebody on androgen deprivation and they have a PSA rise. Uh, again, germline mutations are present in almost 12% of metastatic disease. 
and advanced prostate cancer harbors clinically actionable molecular alterations. And so for this reason, genomic testing is very important. So what can we as APPs or NPs and PAs do? We can do most of the screening, labs, following up on those labs and treating out of uh, normal limits. We're ordering scans and following up on those scans. Administering treatments and managing the toxicity of those treatments as well as routine oncology follow-up. So I'm going to pass this over to Dr. Tafulsi who's going to talk with you about bladder cancer. Thanks, Anne. Good afternoon. Thanks for uh, coming out on a chilly Chicago afternoon. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit to bladder cancer. Uh, in terms of an outline, we'll go over a little bit of the epidemiology and the diagnostics, and then we're going to dive into treatment algorithms for different disease states. Similar to how prostate cancer has disease states, bladder cancer is the same thing. So we have non-muscle invasive disease, um, invasive disease, and metastatic disease. So it's, bladder cancer is the fourth most common malignancy in American men, 10th in women, about 63,000 cases per year, 13,000 deaths. Uh, there's a lot more patients out there with bladder cancer than dying from it because most of the patients, about 75% of them, have superficial non-lethal disease. About 5% of patients when they walk in the door are metastatic. It's a disease of older patients, about 68. And the estimates are as about uh, 9,000 cystectomies a year. So like I mentioned earlier, we try to categorize patients, and this uh, helps us both risk stratify them and also helps uh, develop the best algorithmic treatment plans. So we have invasive and non-invasive disease. The non-invasive disease we separate into low risk and high risk. Uh, muscle invasive disease is a disease that uh, um, invades the muscularis propria or further. Uh, uh, looking specifically at the superficial or non-muscle invasive disease, uh, this is uh, the AUA risk stratification, uh, separating patients to low, intermediate, and high risk. The easy way for me to think about this, the low-risk patients are the solitary, low histologic-grade, smaller tumors. The high-grade are, uh, the high-risk are the high-grade tumors, recurrent high-grade tumors, superficially invasive, CIS tumors, certainly any variant histology. And then intermediate risk is basically everything in between. So the recurrent low-grade tumors, the very rare low-grade T1 tumors, uh, the multifocal tumors. Uh, the EAU has a similar uh, risk stratification, not exactly identical, but very similar. So this is a very uh, straightforward slide. Uh, looks like the New York City subway map. Um, so this is... Uh, the algorithm for non-muscle invasive disease. And if you can see, the real key is whether they start at low, intermediate, high risk. And another important key right here is that, unfortunately, all of these patients may progress to cystectomy. So intravesical therapy is our best agent in the non-muscle invasive population to try to forestall cystectomy. Uh, this is either given postoperatively in the uh, perioperative setting or in the office. Uh, perioperative chemo, there's a long body of literature, uh, most commonly mitomycin, more recently gemcitabine in the perioperative setting. And then in the office, induction therapy, the mainstay, the backbone is BCG, 
and also some chemotherapy. So B BCG, as I mentioned, it's a gold standard. Uh, it's an immunotherapy, not a chemotherapy. It uh, impacts disease in the two key areas that we want to impact. It reduces both the recurrence rate as well as the progression rate. Um, the symptoms, uh, the, the risks are relatively mild. Uh, a lot of patients will have mild irritative symptoms. The dreaded uh, systemic infection or BCGosis fortunately is very rare. Uh, maintenance therapy, there's a, a growing body and a long body of literature that maintenance therapy does really help. So how does BCG work? We're not exactly fully sure how it works. We think it's a combination of the two facets of the immune therapy, innate immunity and adaptive immunity. So we in install the BCG, it interacts with the urethelium, it gets into the uh, urethelial cells more in the cancer than normal, and then triggers both innate immun uh, immunogenic response through a variety of pathways, and then also T cells, both of which culminate, hopefully, in uh, immune-mediated destruction of cancer cells. The maintenance uh, therapy um, aspect uh, makes a lot of sense mechanistically. For an immune-mediated uh, disease or immune-mediated treatment, re-stimulating the immune system should help them uh, with surveillance of the homeostasis, the, own, the patient's immune system to keep the cancer cells away. When we look at a, a meta-analysis, and this is a forest plot, and on the right side of the forest plot is favoring benefit of uh, maintenance, you can see that uh, maintenance does appear to uh, benefit for both uh, intermediate and high-risk uh, patients. Um, and the dose doesn't seem to matter too much. So in the setting of a BCG shortage, this is important information. So from this, and combined with the BCG shortage, uh, we've developed algorithms where we typically will offer maintenance therapy in patients that we categorize as intermediate risk for one year, and then uh, three years of maintenance for the high-risk patients. So getting into BCG a little bit more, um, we think that the immune response leads to cytokine release, and this is why other immunogenic or immunomodulatory intravesical agents may help. Uh, such as interferons, and there's a host of uh, experimental uh, agents on the horizon. Typically, induction is once a week for six weeks. Uh, we always um, warn patients that it is communicable, so they should use bleach for the first 24 hours when they void and barrier condoms. Uh, like I said, the side effects typically are, are you know, relatively manageable, non um, uh, serious uh, urinary side effects or flu-like symptoms. Uh, that maintenance schedule is typically uh, three weeks rather than the six-week induction at three, six, and then every six months after that. And you definitely can dose reduce based on symptom profile, and that helps, again, in the BCG shortage. So interferon alpha is another immunomodulatory agent that's given intravesically. Um, as a monotherapy, it does not seem to work as well, but in combination with BCG, it's controversial, but there is data that suggests that it does augment the BCG response. So this is on the AUA website about the BCG shortage, and so we put it up here because, unfortunately, we don't know when the BCG shortage is going to end. But basically, when we're looking at uh, risk stratification, 
Low-risk patients should not get BCG. We shouldn't waste BCG on patients that may not necessarily need it, may not gain benefit. For patients that have intermediate risk disease, those patients, so the recurrent low-grade tumors, the multifocal tumors, we might want to consider intravesical chemo rather than BCG, again, to try to preserve BCG for patients that really need it. Um, in patients with high-risk disease, so those are the CIS or the high-grade T1 or the uh, high-volume, uh, high-grade tumors, those patients should be prioritized, if at all possible, to full-strength BCG, acknowledging that reduced-dose BCG is still better than nothing. So in terms of the intravesical chemo agents, uh, they're basically all alkylating agents. Uh, the three uh, most prominently used ones are mitomycin, gemcitabine, and valrubicin. Valrubicin was approved about 20 years ago in an era where we really didn't have a lot else to offer. So if you look at the original papers, the response rates were only about 18%, but it was approved for BCG uh, refractory, which was the terminology at the time. Now we would call BCG unresponsive carcinoma in situ. Um, so these patients had failed BCG, had recurrent CIS. And this is a similar sort of administration schedule of uh, weekly for six weeks. So in patients that failed BCG, there have been a lot of different uh, modalities advocated and attempted. Certainly repeating BCG is an option. Chemo radiation is probably the most aggressive. There are small retrospective studies uh, not necessarily the standard of care in the U.S. Uh, intravesical chemotherapy with a variety of different agents uh, have been attempted and advocated. Um, looking at um, gemcitabine, there is a, a growing uh, sort of enthusiasm, and a lot of that was from the SWOG trial that was reported about a year ago. This is in the perioperative setting, showing a, a significant decline in recurrence rates from 47 to 35% at four years. This is now translating into uh, office-based therapy as well, and our office is starting to use a lot more gemcitabine, especially in the setting of the BCG shortage. And so the, the conclusion from the SWOG trial is that uh, patients with a suspected non-invasive urothelial carcinoma uh, intravesical gemcitabine given immediately post-op significantly reduced the recurrence rate. So now shifting gears a little bit to immunotherapy, and this is taking the, the, uh, the world by storm in the bladder cancer world. Uh, this, again, we know bladder cancer is an immunogenic or immunoresponsive tumor by the BCG model. This is getting towards systemic immunotherapy, and this is looking at uh, the dendritic cells, which are the immune uh, cells that will uh, engulf uh, bladder cancer cells, present antigens, and then stimulate the T cells. This is a very complex uh, homeostasis with lots of different cell surface antigens, which all are potential targets. So when we look at non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, all of these different immune checkpoint inhibitors are, are currently in study for uh, BCG unresponsive patients, atezolizumab, uh, nivolumab, pembro, ipi, dervalumab, avulumab. Uh, these are all either PD-1, PDL1, or ipi is a CTLA-4 treatment. None of this is standard as of yet, but 
be aware this is this may be on the horizon if these studies prove out to be successful for the non-muscle invasive bladder patients. So this course started as uh, a systemic therapy course for APPs, and so we've tried to include little pearls or you know, clinical nuggets for how the APP interfaces in all of these different disease states. Certainly, we all know that the APPs are intimately involved in intravesical therapy, uh, both in the administration, keeping them on schedule, and symptom management. And then also all of the scheduling, because we typically will decide six weeks or three weeks, maintenance, induction, when they need their scopes, when they need their scans. Diving into muscle invasive bladder cancer, this is the lethal phenotype. This is the type that we're trying to avoid getting to if we start with uh, non-muscle invasive disease or if they present with this is what we're trying to prevent them from progressing to metastatic and lethal disease. And so this is a great schematic of how we think bladder cancer develops. So we have normal urothelium and it sort of can go a couple of different ways. If it's a hyperplastic pathway, these are the papillary tumors, and a lot of these are the papillary low-grade tumors, not necessarily lethal, but more of a nuisance. They can go the dysplastic way. This is not going to necessarily cause a papillary lesion, but this will lead to CIS, and this can definitely metastasize or develop into invasive carcinoma. And then in between, we have the combination of the hyperplastic and dysplastic these are the high-grade papillary tumors that definitely can sort of end up down here. So the definition of muscle invasive bladder cancer, those are the clinical T2 or higher patients. Uh, so on TRBT, they'll have uh, a disease invading into the muscularis propria. We'll get staging studies to rule out metastatic disease, although we all know that the uh, diagnostic accuracy of our staging studies are less than we'd like. Um, and these patients, in the absence of metastatic disease in the U.S., the standard of care would be cystectomy uh, with or without uh, perioperative chemotherapy. In the patients that refuse cystectomy or that are too old or too sick, uh, we use chemoradiation. Overseas in Europe, where they're a little more focused in quality of life rather than quantity of life, they view chemoradiation and surgery as almost equivalent. That's definitely um, a, a local practice pattern. So back in 2003, uh, a landmark paper in the New England Journal of Medicine demonstrated the benefit of combination of chemotherapy with uh, cystectomy. This was the Grossman uh, paper, the SWOG study, looking at neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by cystectomy as opposed to cystectomy alone. And this showed a significant overall survival benefit in the patients that got chemo prior to cystectomy. This was three cycles of standard uh, MVAC, and actually was before growth factor support, so this was a little bit rougher of a chemo regimen. When they looked at the um, uh, pathologic T0 rate, so the complete response rate in the patients that got combination therapy, it was 38%, more than twice the rate of the patients that had cystectomy alone. This has become an endpoint, the pathologic T0 rate and a lot of different clinical trials that have followed this. So this was the landmark study. There's been a variety of phase three trials looking at combination chemotherapy in the new adjuvant setting. All of them showed similar benefits, and so arguably this has become the standard of care. Certainly the medical oncologists would declare this the standard of care. 
We looked at accelerated or dose-dense MVAC, so we did a trial at Jefferson together with Betsy Plimek and her team at Fox Chase, uh, looking at neoadjuvant accelerated uh, MVAC. Uh, on this trial, um, patients received three cycles of MVAC given every two weeks, so a very accelerated regimen, and then uh, went on to surgery. The average date of surgery uh, from uh, enrolling in the trial was only about 10 weeks. This uh, approach obviates a common concern that uh, urologists have had over the years with preoperative chemo that we may be potentially delaying their curative surgery for tumors that may not be chemo-responsive. So 10 weeks is not necessarily a, a dramatically long delay. When we looked at uh, how these patients did, it was a total of 44 patients we enrolled. 84% of them got all three cycles as hoped for. Uh, the, there were side effects, but if you look at the grade four uh, side effects, uh, really not anything too, too eye-popping. Uh, and the majority of patients experienced no adverse events or only one, grade one or two. When we looked at the pathologic response rate, exactly the same. The T0 rate was 38%. When we looked at pathologic downstaging, now all of these were muscle invasive at entry. 65% uh, of them were downstaged to either T0 or less than T2, which we think does offer clinical benefit. So do we have to give chemo pre-op? Why not wait till post-op? Why not really use the final cystectomy specimen to tell us who needs chemo and avoid the toxicity of chemo in patients that may not need it or may not respond to it? So this is a cute little slide from Jeannie Hoffman, who was uh, medical oncology, used to be on staff with us at Jefferson, is now at Hopkins. And it's sort of simplistic, but it absolutely is true. It's a hell of a lot easier to give chemo prior to surgery than be in the situation with a post-op patient with a horrible path report and then try to get chemotherapy into them. So the argument in favor of adjuvant chemo is that you have more accurate patient selection and you won't delay their local treatment. But this number, I think, is real. Probably about a third of the patients who we'd want to give chemo to won't be medically fit for chemo after surgery. And this definitely does not have the same level one evidence in favor of an adjuvant approach. The Europeans tried to do a, a trial looking at adjuvant therapy. This was a randomized trial of patients that underwent radical cystectomy, had adverse pathologic features, and they were randomized to post-operative adjuvant uh, chemo, either MVAC or gemcitabine cisplatin or observation with induction chemo given at the first sign of recurrence. This trial was closed early because of poor accrual. So this was the schema of patients. Um, you can't really see that, but there was a signal that the neoadjuvant, which is shown here in blue, excuse me, the uh, immediate adjuvant shown here in blue did better than patients that were offered delayed chemotherapy. Uh, this was not statistically significant. So if you look at the ASCO guidelines on muscle invasive bladder, this is an endorsement of European guidelines. I highlighted two very important points uh, in the guidelines, the recommendation for muscle invasive bladder and metastatic bladder cancer. Uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy is recommended for stage T2 to T4 non-metastatic patients, uh, cisplatin-based chemo combination. 
And then, uh, although neoadjuvant chemo is recommended, adjuvant chemo uh, may be offered for high-risk patients who did not receive neoadjuvant therapy. So what's the role of biomarkers? Uh, biomarkers have not hit prime time as strongly for bladder as it has in other tumors. Uh, but certainly, if we can pick out patients or predict which patients may respond better or not to chemotherapy, that can really help tailor our treatment uh, planning. Uh, there's been a, a fairly good body of evidence that uh, patients that have DNA damage response gene mutations uh, may predict responses to cisplatin-based chemotherapy. Uh, cisplatin is an alkylating agent that causes single-strand and double-strand DNA breaks. And so if you have impairment of the normal DNA response pathways, this can make them more or less sensitive to cisplatinum. There's also been an uh, awareness that bladder cancer may have similarities to breast cancer. And so breast cancer, they subtype or molecular subtype breast cancer tumors into basal, luminal, and P53 type uh, tumors. And so this is now appears to be very analogous to urothelial carcinoma in the bladder. So if you look at basal, luminal, and P53, Basal cell uh, subtypes appear to be uh, very aggressive with a shorter disease-specific and overall survival um, because they appear to be more uh, virulent uh, phenotype. And it appears that those patients might be particularly sensitive to neoadjuvant chemotherapy with uh, benefit. Luminal uh, tumors appear to be a little bit less aggressive but also appear to be very chemoresponsive. The P53 type appear to be uh, more relatively more chemo-resistant to MVAC-based or cisplatin-based combination chemo. So if you know which tumor type this is, this might really help us individualize a treatment plan. So carrying this further, a multi-institutional trial looking at these specific uh, bladder cancer molecular subtypes, um, looking at how they responded to uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and so they were able to uh, show that basal tumors appeared to, uh, basal-like tumors appeared to show the biggest bang for the buck with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So we went back, I won't take any credit, Betsy Plimack at Fox Chase went back and looked at our uh, 44 patient cohort that underwent neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, we harvested tumor before and after um, surgery and before and after chemo and looked at uh, DNA, DNA damage repair genes. And patients that uh, had a pathologic CR appeared to have more mutations and alterations in these pathways than those that didn't have a CR. Um, when you look here, in the blue are the patients that had DNA damage repair mutations. The red are the ones that didn't or that had wild type. And they showed significant improvements in progression-free and overall survival if they had these mutations. This really does raise the question on whether we can do uh, upfront uh, profiling of these tumors and use this to help decide who gets neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Additionally, when we look at the patients that had a, a good response to chemo, that had downstaging or pathologic CR rates, it was pretty uniform across a variety of different uh, clinical trials. The PT0 rate ranged from 25 to 40 percent, uh, less than PT2, even higher, about 50 percent. Um, but not 
the majority of patients. So certainly we have a lot more room to work and hopefully we can do better. This is where potentially the immune checkpoint inhibitors can really have a role in pdl one inhibition. So here you can see the T cell interacting with the tumor cell. We have the uh, T cell receptor and the antigen, and we have the PDL1 and PD1 that connect. Uh, if this is an inhibitory, so if you can inhibit an inhibitory, that's a positive. It's a little bit of a double or triple negative. So it's a very complex interplay between the tumor microenvironment, the lymph nodes, which is the immune system, and then the, the microcirculation. And so every one of these offers a targetable, drug-targetable target for potential therapy in the cancer immunity cycle. Diving into the weeds a little bit more, so here we have the priming phase. And again, I showed this earlier, the dendritic cell that will take up uh, uh, exogenous antigen or foreign invaders, present these antigens to the T cells, and then they get primed from the lymph node. They get into the periphery, the blood circulation, and then hopefully will interact and kill the, t the tumor cells. So we have the, the gas and we have the brakes. And so if we can step on the gas and let off the brake, we get a better immune system response. A very simplistic way of thinking of this, uh, as shown here. So we have different cellular antigenic targets for the brake and the gas. So how do we regulate T cell uh, activation on the left? These targets are uh, agonist or activating. And these are things like Gitter, which is on the horizon as a target, and OX40. Um, on the inhibitory, we have CTLA-4, PD-1. So if we can block an inhibitor, it's going to be a stimulatory response. So who is platinum eligible? It's a little bit of a complicated schema. Uh, certainly, renal function is the most prominent reason for cisplatin eligibility. Uh, uh, different uh, creatinine clearances have been uh, set forth. Uh, 60 is the most conservative uh, GFR. Uh, our oncologists at Jefferson will usually treat down to 50, but below 50 they get pretty nervous. Uh, other uh, common reasons that patients might be cisplatin ineligible include uh, both um, uh, hearing and peripheral neuropathic uh, side effects. So if they have pre-existing hearing loss, or neuropathy, they're not great candidates for uh, cisplatin-based chemotherapy. So if you look at an average cohort of patients in their 60s and 70s, a significant number of them are going to be cisplatin ineligible. So we're looking at um, what's on the horizon and has been approved in the checkpoint in the inhibitor therapy uh, milieu for metastatic uh, urothelial carcinoma. We look at uh, atezolizumab, dervalumab, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, and evolumumab, uh, and their response rates, although not eye-popping, are still better than the historical response in second-line therapy of only about 10%. So these are the immune checkpoint inhibitors that have been approved for metastatic urothelial carcinoma, uh, the same drugs I mentioned. Um, the, Atezolizumab, dervalumab, and avolumumab are PDL1 inhibitors. Nivolumab and pembrolizumab are PD1 inhibitors. Again, getting back to this complex interplay 
between tumor, immune system, and the circulation. These are all different targets. Uh, we have PDL1, PD1 up here. We have IDO and PDL1 down here. Uh, but as you may imagine, as we get a better understanding of all of these mechanisms, you know, these all may be used as newer agents, either uh, alone or in combination. So atizolizumab was approved in second-line therapy uh, based on this trial. Uh, and you can see that the uh, response rates were not great. But again, in the second-line therapy, we don't have great options. Patients that have already failed cisplatin-based chemo or are cisplatin ineligible, um, still better than the uh, pre-existing uh, historical controls. Now, these trials and all of the initial uh, checkpoint inhibitor uh, clinical trials required measurement of the PD-1 or PDL one levels, and so they all had their different assays. So two or three was considered a high expression of, of PD-1. Uh, one or zero was considered low. And so when we look at the um, subgroup analysis, the patients in blue that had a high expression of PDL1 appeared to do the best. The ones that had a lower, not so much. But the key point, if you go back and look, is that even patients that had low expression still had some responses. So you don't have to have a high PDL1 uh, level, but you need to acknowledge that they're more likely to respond if their PDL1 is overexpressed. Uh, these are different side effects than cytotoxic chemotherapy. Uh, here you get some immune-based uh, side effects like pneumonitis, colitis. Uh, fatigue is very common. Uh, again, in this trial, this is second-line therapy, so it's not surprising. Um, but the grade 3 and 4 toxicity rates, fortunately, were very low. A very similar trial of pembrolizumab in the second-line setting, published in the New England Journal. Uh, these patients were randomized to uh, pembrolizumab or second-line chemotherapy, and these patients received a variety of second-line therapies, mostly the taxanes. And the patients that got pembrolizumab has, had a significant improved survival, still not great, but better than historical controls, second-line chemotherapy. Um, this is progression-free survival. This is overall survival. Overall survival, 10 months versus 7 months. When you look at the uh, waterfall plot, so the little green arrows here are patients that are still on therapy. There were a significant number of very prolonged, durable responses in the patients that got uh, uh, pembrolizumab. So this also gives some uh, uh, cause for optimism that if they respond, they might really respond very well. And we had some patients, not on Pembro, but on, on Tezo, that lasted years longer than we ever expected. Uh, this is a very uh, difficult to read slide, but basically if you look at the um, adverse events, uh, on the left is Pembro, on the right is Chemo, any grade versus grade 3, 4, or 5. The grade 3, 4, or 5 rates for Pembrolizumab was only 15% as opposed to 50% in the patients that got second-line chemotherapy. Here's another way of looking at the tolerability. This is from baseline quality of life. The gray is uh, chemo, and the green is pembrolizumab. Less of a decline in quality of life in the patients that got pembrolizumab. So when they looked at atizolizumab in the first-line therapy for cisplatin-based uh, uh, 
uh, cisplatin ineligible, uh, metastatic, uh, locally advanced urothelial carcinoma. This uh, is the Invigor 210 trial. Um, showed objective response rates of about 23% and uh, complete response rates of 9%. Keynote 052 is the first-line PEMBRO trial, again, for cisplatin-ineligible patients that were locally advanced or unresectable metastatic patients. This also had a similar 24% response rate, uh, and a, a significant number of them appeared to be durable. So if we look at the landscape, which is shifting in advanced bladder cancer, we stratify by platinum-ineligible and platinum-ineligible. And arguably, right now, cisplatin is still the standard of care, although the uh, checkpoint inhibition studies, as they come on, may change this. But we have a huge unmet need in both the second-line uh, therapy and this platinum-ineligible patient populations. And if you look at the PDL1 as first line in platinum ineligible, uh, clinical benefit rates of about 30%. Nothing to sneeze at, but not necessarily a home run. So, what about neoadjuvant checkpoint inhibition? So, this is the PURE trial. This is preoperative pembrolizumab before radical cystectomy, a phase two trial. Uh, so, patients that were fit and uh, scheduled for cystectomy got three uh, three-week cycles of pembrolizumab and then underwent cystectomy. This was a small trial of about 50 patients. Uh, this um, showed um, pathologic complete response rate uh, almost identical to the, you know, the MVAC data of about 40 percent. Very impressive, very uh, eye-opening data. So this may, it's not currently, but may be uh, paradigm changing. We'll have to see as additional data matures. When they looked at the DNA damage repair genes and PDL1 status, uh, this, uh, patients that had uh, um, overexpression of PDL1 had a higher pathologic complete response rate. Patients that had alterations in the DNA damage repair had an even higher uh, response rate. And if you had both, it was 90% pathologic complete response rate. So as this also gives further credence to the idea of molecularly characterizing these patients preoperatively, we may get to a more personalized treatment. And there's a lot that we can potentially take from the lung cancer data. In the lung cancer data, neoadjuvant uh, pd one blockade or in the metastatic, they showed even higher major pathologic responses uh, in both of these patient populations. So there's a lot of interest in looking at checkpoint inhibition either uh, in earlier disease states or in combination with uh, standard chemotherapy, uh, Pembro, nivolumab, atezolizumab, and these uh, we'll have to see how they, uh, how they finish up. So what else do we have on the horizon? So very timely, ertafitinib was approved last week. Uh, this is an oral FTFR inhibitor, fibroblast growth factor inhibitor. Uh, this is a phase two trial uh, looking at second line or, or greater uh, patients uh, uh, that had uh, biopsy-proven mutations in the FTR, FTFR2 and 3. So relatively small trial, but again, FDA will take this as a registration trial when we don't have good other options, and it shows responses. 87 
patients. They had an overall response rate of 33%. CR rate of only 2%, but a, a partial response rate of about 30%. Like I said earlier, these patients, uh, responders, included patients that uh, had failed previous PDL1. This um, did have a little bit of a, a curveball in terms of side effects. 25% of them had ocular side effects. So even though it's an oral agent, uh, we'll have to see what the enthusiasm of urology is to get involved with this. Certainly need to get uh, ophthalmology involved. But this was approved last week for second line or greater progressing urothelial carcinoma after platinum-based chemo. Another uh, exciting uh, compound on the pipeline is infortimab. So infortimab is an antibody drug conjugate. So this has a antibody targeting Nectin-4. Nectin was on one of the uh, diagrams I showed as a cell surface antigen as a target. Um, this is a cell adhesion molecule, and then it's con conjugated with a, a, a cytotoxic drug uh, conjugate. Uh, Nectin-4 is uh, overexpressed in about 83% of urothelial carcinoma. So in a very similar trial design, second-line therapy, metastatic urothelial carcinoma, failing at least, at least one prior chemotherapy, um, 155 patients. Uh, this also showed significant uh, um, uh, responses. When we looked at the, uh, the patients, 60% of them had a more, two or more prior therapies and uh, three-quarters of them had had a prior checkpoint inhibition. Um, and you looked at the uh, overall response rate, very similar, about 33%. Um, pretty well tolerated. There were four fatal uh, adverse events, but it's not clear if these were related to the drug. Again, this is a heavily pretreated population. When they looked at uh, whether they'd had prior checkpoint inhibition or whether they were checkpoint inhibition naive, similar response rates, um, and uh, the median overall survival uh, was about a year. Shifting gears a little bit to upper tract urethelial carcinoma, a very uncommon malignancy. We do sort of assume, correctly or incorrectly, that we can extrapolate from the bladder cancer literature. It is the same tissue type, but it's not really clear that we can necessarily assume the natural history and biology is the same. Uh, when we talk about the role of the APP in all of this, uh, certainly survivorship is a big part of these patients, especially the cystectomy patients. Uh, so uh, ostomy care, neobladder care, um, and then as they progress, certainly routine screening and labs and keeping them on schedule is a very important aspect uh, and for follow-up as well. And now I'll transition to my partner, Costas, to talk about kidney. Great. Uh, thanks again for having us. Moving on. Um, renal cell carcinoma, about 2 to 3% of all cancer deaths in America. 90% of renal tumors are renal cell. The majority of those are clear cell type. As far as uh, things that can predispose uh, to renal cell carcinoma, smoking and obesity, uh, and of course there are hereditary types of renal cell carcinoma such as in von Hippel-Lindau. Uh, as of 2018, for men, uh, kidney cancer or 
cancer of the kidney and renal pelvis were number five on the list of new cases of cancer. For women, it was number 10. And as far as deaths from cancer, uh, it was number 10 on the list for men, and it was not in the top 10 in women. As far as the histologies go, like I mentioned, clear cell is the most common. There is also papillary and chromophobe, which is thought to be a little bit more indolent. Some of the less common but very virulent forms of renal cell carcinoma include medullary and collecting duct carcinoma. Certainly a urothelial cancer can be a, a, a renal uh, a neoplasm as well. There are also benign tumors such as oncocytoma and angiomyolipoma. This is what they look like under the microscope. Clear cell renal cell carcinoma has that very distinct appearance with clear cytoplasm. For papillary tumors, you see uh, papillary uh, archetype uh, in the histology with type 1 being more basophilic and type 2 being more eosinophilic. And then you have the classic argument, is a chromophobe renal cell carcinoma or oncocytoma? Uh, the differences are that chromophobe renal cell carcinoma has very distinct cell borders and perinuclear haloing. As far as the diagnosis and workup goes, uh, again, for, we're, wanting, we're going to want to get uh, cross-sectional contrasted imaging, if at all possible, at our institution. We're also using uh, contrast-enhanced ultrasound uh, in pa patients who uh, cannot get uh, any type of uh, intravenous contrasted agent with either a CT or an MRI. Uh, as far as staging goes, I've listed it all here. Most of us in the room are very familiar with clinical staging for renal cell carcinoma. However, one thing that has not changed over the years is that approximately a quarter to a third of all patients who present with renal cell carcinoma are going to present with metastatic disease. And that's where we come into uh, the topic of chemotherapy. Renal cell carcinoma is one of the most chemo-resistant tumors uh, that exists in 83 trials involving over 4,000 patients. An overall response rate was dismal at approximately 6%. So some of the agents which have shown activity from a cytotoxic chemotherapy standpoint are the platinums as well as uh, gemcitabine. However, uh, renal cell carcinoma is an extremely immunogenic uh, cancer. And there is certainly immunological evidence uh, of this. Uh, first of all, it is uh, spontaneous remissions have actually been documented, documented in renal cell carcinoma. Renal cell carcinoma is one of those tumors which contains an abscopal effect, which means that once you treat the primary tumor, very, very occasionally you can actually see regression of metastatic uh, deposits. There is an increased risk of renal cell carcinoma in patients uh, with immunodeficient states, whether they are on immunosuppressive therapy because of transplantation or if they have HIV. And when looking uh, at immunohistochemistry of renal cell carcinoma, they are uh, very significantly infiltrated with tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes, which, as Ann showed earlier, are very significant uh, in patients um, who are going to have an immune response or, or respond to you, immuno-oncologic agents. Up until the year 2005, we were in what we called the cytokine era. We only had a couple of agents that uh, were active against metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And this is what looks like an NCC and guideline, but it was something uh, that was a, an algorithm of how to treat uh, metastatic disease, and this is from the year 2000, and I'll break it down for you. 
really at that point only interferon and IL-2 were in our armamentarium. Fast forward a little bit to the advent of the targeted area, which again began around 2004, 2005. And really the one finding that was significant to bring this error about was the role of the VHL gene in the etiology of especially clear cell renal cell carcinoma. By inactivating the VHL tumor suppressor protein, you would get an accumulation of hypoxic inducible factor, or HIF, and an overexpression of a number of genes, including VEGF. And it has been shown that in patients with a VEGF-positive tumor, they have significantly worse survival as, as compared to patients who have a VEGF-negative uh, tumor uh, as far as renal cell carcinoma goes. This is a diagram of the various mechanisms of action, the pathways of VEGF and VEGF-like uh, proteins, which all lead to an increased accumulation of HIF. And included in this diagram are the various targeted agents that are available and where they actually block uh, the uh, production of this hypoxic inducible factor that leads to uh, the development of clear cell renal cell carcinoma. And one thing you should notice is that a number of these agents actually block a couple different areas in these pathways. This was one of the uh, landmark articles looking at the targeted agents. Uh, one of the first ones to come out was sunitinib or sutent. It was compared against interferon alpha in patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma in the first-line setting. And as you can see, there was a significant advantage of sunitinib over interferon alpha as far as progression-free survival goes. However, when looking at the adverse events, one thing that is notable is how uh, harsh the targeted agents can be. You can see the incidence of grade three and grade four adverse events, sunitinib compared to the historic interferon alpha, and the numbers are significantly uh, greater. This is the dreaded hand-foot syndrome, which can actually occur to patients, uh, occur to patients who are on these targeted agents, and it is a particularly morbid uh, side effect of many of the uh, actual targeted agents. Hot on the heels of sunitinib was serafinib uh, in the first line for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. The target trial compared serafinib to placebo and showed an advantage in progression-free survival of at least two months. Uh, one part of this trial was that the patients who did not respond on placebo six months later were actually uh, crossed over to treatment with serafinib, and you actually saw a response in those patients as well. So with those two uh, landmark papers came about the advent of the targeted therapy era. These are several other trials that were involved in approving all of these medications, which were the targeted agents. However, one thing that you will notice is that all of these agents were compared against either placebo or interferon alpha simply because of the era that they were brought about. So this was a uh, very, very inferior comparator, and I'll get into that in a little bit later. Now we come to the newer targeted agents, uh, the first one being plazopinib, and there was a lot of excitement about this, I know, when it came out. The COMPARES trial, as opposed to interferon alpha or a uh, or placebo actually compared pazopinib 
uh, to sunitinib, although it was in a non-inferiority uh, type of, uh, uh, that, that's how the actual trial was designed. The primary endpoint were progression-free survival, and the secondary endpoint included overall survival and patients were randomized one-to-one. -one. And indeed, it did hit uh, the primary endpoint, which was non-inferiority of pazopinib when compared to sunitinib. You can't actually see the blue line, but that's almost because it completely mirrors the pink line in both progression-free and overall survival. However, although it was just non-inferior as far as efficacy goes, when looking at how it was actually tolerated, this is the, uh, this is the forest plot showing that patients really, really tolerated pazopinib significantly better than they actually tolerated sunitinib, and pazopinib did become a targeted agent of favor uh, due to this actual uh, fact. Cabazatinib was also compared to sunitinib in the Cabazon trial. However, this was looking at the either poor or intermediate risk patients, and this was a phase two trial. Again, these patients were randomized one-to-one. -one. Uh, as I showed on my earlier diagram, cabazatinib actually affects uh, HIF uh, accumulation in several different areas, uh, as I've actually shown here. In the Cabison trial, as I mentioned, the it was a first-line trial for treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma in patients who were risk stratified to be either intermediate or poor risk, and cabazatinib uh, outperformed sunitinib from a progression-free survival standpoint, 8.2 months versus 5.6 months, with a response rate of 46% versus 18%, and notably, very similar rates of grade three and grade four ad adverse events. And as a result of this trial, cabazatinib was approved for treatment of first-line metastatic renal cell carcinoma. So we started here, which is the historic immunotherapy agents in the cytokine area. Then we jumped over to the targeted era, and now, because of the advent of the new immunotherapeutic agents, we're going back into the immunotherapy uh, immuno, uh, era as far as metastatic renal cell carcinoma goes. And this is one of the first papers that showed activity of uh, the checkpoint inhibitors. In this case, it was nivolumab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor. This was compared against one of the targeted agents, Everolimus, in patients who had been already treated for renal cell carcinoma. So this was in a second line and beyond actual setting. And in this study, nivolumab outperformed Everolimus as far as overall survival goes. And even more significantly, the grade three or grade four adverse events were only 19% in the nivolumab uh, uh, cohort as opposed to 37% uh, in the Everolimus cohort. So not only did it outperform from an overall survival standpoint, but it was also much better tolerated. The checkpoint, the checkmate, 214 trial, uh, which was just published last year, looked at a combination of nivolumab plus ipilimumab. So now you have a PD-1 inhibitor plus a CTLA-4 inhibitor compared against sunitinib in first-line treatment for advanced renal cell carcinoma. So these patients were, were previously untreated as opposed to the prior trial, which was in the second or third line. Uh, Big numbers, about 1,100 patients, also randomized one-to-one, -one, good follow-up, and uh, this was very landmark. Uh, nivolumab and ipilimumab 
outperformed uh, sunitinib from an overall, uh, overall survival standpoint and a progression-free survival standpoint with an objective response rate of 42% versus 27% and a complete response rate, which is notable, of 9% versus 1%. Uh, also, uh, grade three to four adverse events, you have a combination immunotherapy, which is still better tolerated than the targeted agent, 46% versus 63%, and uh, discontinuation of drug uh, was uh, seen in both. Because of this trial, Ipinevo was approved for first-line intermediate and poor-risk metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Now, that is key that this was the intermediate to poor-risk group. Because in this trial, on, on a subset analysis, patients with favorable risk actually did better with sunitinib. So, and this, now we're beginning to stratify how we're looking at these patients. So they're a little bit more nuanced as opposed to everyone has metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Now we're beginning to look at the actual risk categories and uh, we're going to treat them based on that risk category with diff actually different agents. One thing about the IMDC uh, risk stratification or categorization of, uh, risk, uh, of, of risk in patients who present with metastatic renal cell carcinoma, and this is actually very interesting. Because of how the scale works and how patients are scored, if a patient presents with untreated metastatic renal cell carcinoma, about 75 to 80% of them off the bat are going to be considered either intermediate or poor risk, and that is based on this scale. So the vast majority of the patients are gonna be treated with uh, medications that are targeting the intermediate to poor risk group, and only a very, very small minority of them are going to be considered favorable risk, and as a result, are going to be treated uh, as such uh, with medications. Now, the nivolumab uh, study that I showed earlier was in second and third line. As far as activity of the checkpoint inhibitors for metastatic renal cell carcinoma in the first line setting, this was actually reported at ASCO back in 2018. And this looked at both favorable and poor and intermediate risk groups and showed activity in both of them with a response rate of 32% in favorable and 42% in the poor and intermediate risk groups with a 38% overall response rate in all groups in an intention to treat analysis. Looking at the progression-free survival and the overall survival, they were also uh, very, very acceptable. Um, uh, and this is also at, in patients, uh, regardless of their risk stratification, uh, as far as uh, treatment of clear cell renal cell carcinoma goes. And this shows the activity of checkpoint inhibition monotherapy in this patient population. So now we have patients, we have medications that are active against metastatic renal cell carcinoma that have very different activities, and the question is, well, what happens if you combine them? So, and the VEGF-targeted therapy and immunotherapy combination therapy has now been looked at uh, very carefully, and uh, hot off the presses is uh, what I'm going to uh, show you in a second. So this was first reported at ASCO back in 2018. This was the EMOTION trial looking at atezolizumab combined with bevacizumab uh, versus sunitinib in patients who were PD-L1 positive. And you, out, and you saw that in this study, 
uh, atezolizumab and bevacizumide, so the combination treatment actually outperformed sunitinib with regard to progression-free survival, 11.2 versus uh, 7.7 months, with a minimum follow-up of 12 months. Now, the, prime, the endpoint number two was overall survival and the intention to treat uh, population. So now we're not just looking at PD-1 positive, we're looking across PD-L1 positivity and negativity, and we're awaiting, we're awaiting the next endrome analysis. However, the trend in the intention to treat group is that you're going to see an advantage of the combination therapy over, uh, over sutent monotherapy, regardless of PD-L1 uh, positivity. As far as the adverse effects go, again, I keep on hammering this home. Sunitinib monotherapy, grade three to five effects are actually quite high, much higher than Ipi and Nevo combination immunotherapy, Atezo and Bevacizumab combination tar uh, targeted therapy with immunotherapy, and certainly the lowest, the best tolerated is going to be uh, single agent immunotherapy. As I mentioned, hot off the presses, this was in the New England Journal of Medicine just this past March. Combination therapy, pembrolizumab plus axitinib versus sunitinib uh, for advanced renal cell carcinoma. The primary endpoint in this study was overall survival and progression-free survival in the intention-to-treat population. So that's overall looking at all the patients. And you see that the combination therapy outperforms sunitinib with regard to overall survival and progression-free survival with a response rate of about 60% in the combination group versus just about 40% in the uh, monotherapy, uh, targeted therapy group. Interestingly enough, the benefit of the combination therapy was observed in the intention-to-treat uh, uh, analysis, so it was across IMDC risk groups and regardless of PDL1 expression. As far as the adverse events go, now you're not seeing as much of an advantage because you have a targeted agent in both groups, and I think that the targeted agents are what's going to drive the adverse events in a lot of these patients who are uh, being treated with uh, metastatic renal cell carcinoma, either with monotherapy or combination therapy, an immune agent along with a targeted agent. Now, based on this study, in April of 2019, the FDA approved combination Pembrol plus Exitinib for first-line advanced renal cell carcinoma. In the same journal or the same edition of New England Journal of Medicine as that past article, this was published also looking at a targeted, at a combination targeted agent plus immunotherapy, Evalumab plus Exitinib versus Sunitinib for advanced renal cell carcinoma. This was also a phase three trial uh, and it was looking at uh, 886 patients, randomized one-to-one, -one with also a primary endpoint of overall survival and progression-free survival. However, this was in pdl one positive tumors, with only in the secondary endpoint where they're looking at an intention-to-treat analysis regardless of pdl one positivity. And what they showed, first in the pdl one positive tumors, here are the curves. So your survival curves, you're seeing a, an advantage of the combination therapy and progression-free survival uh, versus uh, sunitinib monotherapy. However, in the intention-to-treat population, the overall population, the curves actually look very, very similar. So a little bit worse uh, uh, performance from both, but you're seeing the separation in the combination regimen when compared to sunitinib uh, monotherapy. 
Looking at the forest plot, again, this is going to be uh, now what the primary uh, endpoint was and PDL1 positivity. So these are just the PDL1 positive tumors. And regardless of the subset analysis here, you saw an advantage of the combination therapy versus uh, the uh, targeted agent uh, monotherapy. And looking at the waterfall uh, plot down below, uh, you're going to, and this again, this is the PDL1 positive group. You're certainly going to see an advantage of the combination therapy uh, over Sutent. Now, getting into the adverse events, like I said, now we're comparing two regimens, both of which contain targeted agents. So you're actually seeing very similar uh, episodes of grade three or higher uh, comp, uh, uh, adverse events, and discontinuation of drug was actually uh, very similar in the two groups as well. And based on this article, the FDA is going to decide on the combination of Evalumab plus Exitinib for the first-line treatment of advanced renal cell carcinoma, and that will hopefully come out in June 2019. So here is our landscape for the treatment of metastatic uh, clear cell carcinoma against you know, all risk groups being looked at here. Certainly you have the nivolumab, and these are the response rates, nivolumab monotherapy uh, going all the way up to what I just showed you, which are the combination therapies um, uh, with a combination of a targeted agent along with an immuno-oncologic agent. Here is the, the combination therapy of two immune agents with CTLA-4 inhibition as well as PD-1 inhibition. Again, the monotherapy, immunotherapy, pembrolizumab, and now getting back down into the targeted agents down here. Can you advance that slide, please? All the way. Keep going. One more. Thank you. So as far as the recommendations for first-line metastatic renal cell carcinoma, you should try to split them up in the IMDC risk groups. Still preferred for a favorable risk group, you're looking at the targeted agents, but you're looking at combination therapy for the, uh, for the uh, poor and intermediate uh, risk groups. So now we've looked at first-line. What about immunotherapy in the second line and beyond? These are the systemic options that are offered for metastatic renal cell carcinoma in the second line and beyond. I already showed this uh, earlier. This was, the first, uh, this was the first trial looking at the efficacy of uh, nivolumab in this situation, so one of the checkpoint inhibitors compared against everolimus in renal cell carcinoma after uh, treatment with one of the targeted agents, which is one of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And again, we see that the nivolumab outperformed uh, everolimus with regard to overall survival and was also uh, much better uh, tolerated. Again, the, the objective response rate was 25% to just 5%. As far as uh, quality of life goes, and I showed this uh, as well, you're going to see an improved tolerability of the uh, nivolumab, so the immuno-oncologic agent versus the targeted agent. And interestingly enough, in this study, looking at subset analysis, PDL1 did not, did not necessarily predict response to nivolumab, so both PDL1 positive and negative tumors did respond, but was a negative prognostic marker in actually both arms. So as far as possible sequences for metastatic clear cell renal carcinoma in the second line and beyond, the immuno-oncologic agents are beginning to infiltrate uh, the actual paradigms for treatment uh, as, as being shown in red. 
Really quickly, getting into adjuvant therapy, adjuvant therapy for renal cell carcinoma. There are several trials that have uh, been published. Uh, unfortunately, the vast majority of them have been negative, such as the ASSURE trial and the EVEREST trial. This was the ASSURE trial published in 2016, which was looking at adjuvant-targeted therapies for high-risk uh, non-metastatic non renal cell carcinoma. Again, it was a negative trial. No difference in the disease-free or overall survival. The S-TRAC trial, on the other hand, was a semi-positive trial published in 2016, also looked at adjuvants in nitinib and high-risk renal cell carcinoma. The reason why it was kind of positive was that it did show a benefit in disease-free survival when sunitinib was compared to placebo. However, it did not show a benefit in overall survival. And uh, of note, the trial did focus on high-risk clear cell renal cell carcinoma uh, as I've showed by the risk stratification. And unfortunately, as of yet, this has not really changed uh, certainly our practice at Jefferson. Uh, we're very, very uh, discriminatory about the patients who we are recommending for adjuvant treatment, uh, certainly the younger patients who we think are going to tolerate these medications. But again, this is sunitinib. These are high-risk patients. We already know that Combination therapy with two immunologic agents or an, immuno, immuno, an immuno-oncology agent in addition to a targeted agent will have better outcomes. So really, is this trial um, something that's, at this point, uh, something that should be uh, considered? And I think that's a question that needs to be answered. As far as cytoreductive nephrectomy, um, again, historically, we were taking out whenever a patient came to us with metastatic disease, that was regardless of risk stratification of this patient. That was because of two trials, the European trial, the EORTC trial, and the SWOG trial. Both were published uh, at the same time. However, again, this was looking at cytoreductive nephrectomy in addition to interferon. And what was notable about these trials is that there was an overall survival seen with patients who received a cytorenephrectomy and went on to interferon treatment as opposed to those patients who had interferon alone. And the survival benefit was actually almost uh, two times in, uh, in months. And that was all, all patients uh, across the board. The one thing about this trial is that all patients who were involved in this trial received some type of systemic therapy. So, they were able to get these patients to systemic therapy regardless of how they tolerated the actual nephrectomy. And I think that that's actually extremely important because, as we saw with adjuvant treatment in the, um, in the bladder cancer population, just getting patients to the point that they can actually get a systemic treatment, I think, is very important. And, and a fair amount of those patients are not actually going to make it. Now, more recently, this was an, uh, uh, an observational study that looked at the benefit of uh, cytoreductive nephrectomy, and this was a positive trial, also seeing some benefit um, in cytoreductive nephrectomy when compared to systemic therapy alone. However, this was a retrospective comparison. Prospectively, this is the Carmina trial, which has changed how we are uh, uh, looking at these patients, it is seen an advantage of sunitinib of sunitinib alone. Or I'm sorry, it's seen an equivalence of sunitinib alone versus patients who get an upfront cytoreductive nephrectomy and then go on to systemic therapy. And again, that medication is sunitinib. 
These are high-risk patients, so the question is, in the era of immuno-oncologic agents, are we going to see even better data uh, than what we're seeing now? So, as far as cytoreductive nephrectomy goes, it does improve survival really only if systemic therapy is, is delivered. Not all patients who undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy unfortunately receive systemic therapy, and not all, all patients who undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy require systemic therapy, and the CARMINA trial indicate that some patients actually may be harmed by cytoreductive nephrectomy. So what is the role of the APP, the nurse practitioner, or the PA in renal cell carcinoma? Really, uh, as opposed to their... Uh, very intensive involvement in prostate cancer and bladder cancer. For renal cell carcinoma, it's really a matter of just following these patients and looking for some of the side effects when they're on these systemic therapies. Okay, so we're going to move on to our case presentations. We have about 20 minutes to go through these. We have three cases. These are going to be audience, audience response involved. So uh, I'm going to go through the cases with you. These are uh, patients who present with metastatic disease, we are, we're going to go through all the tumor types that we actually showed uh, initially, so prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and renal cell carcinoma, and there are areas for audience response throughout these cases, which I will stop and have you actually answer. So get out your phones. Our first patient is WC, presented with a PSA of 1.6, had an apical nodule on DRE, a biopsy demonstrated 9 out of 12 cores positive for maximum Gleason 5 plus 3, unusual, adenocarcinoma of the prostate with a significant uh, involvement. So as far as treatment options go, go ahead and uh, list your options. Again, this is the audience response. Okay, so all over the place, but most of you think that we're going to be going ahead and staging these patients. Some of you are jumping to your axiomen scan, others are going with more conventional imaging. So the patient underwent a robotic-assisted radical prostatectomy, pathologic T3A N0 R0 gluten score 4 plus 5 disease, and here's this PSA, undetectable post-op, and then it started to become detectable. So now we see the patient had their first biochemical recurrence after radical prostatectomy. What would you do with this patient at this point? Again, audience response, we'll go ahead and take your answers. He is asymptomatic. Good question. How would you treat this patient, Dr. Trabolsi? I think you said bicalutamide. <laughs> and you agree with one person, so uh, a lot of other uh, of our uh, responders would go to restaging the patient, which I think is reasonable. So the patient has biochemical, recur biochemical recurrence. As far as treatment goes, they go on bicalutamide, they start Lupron uh, as is uh, standard of care, and they get uh, or salvage radiation treatment. They respond to the radiation with, an uh, radiation with an undetectable PSA. However, after a couple years, their PSA starts to rocket up, and they get repeat staging studies. 
Those are negative. Again, they're conventional studies, CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, and a bone scan. The patient is started back on the Lupron. Again, they respond to the Lupron. However, while they are castrate, uh, they demonstrate another biochemical recurrence. So we are going to restage the patient once again. What are our options to restage this patient? Ann, what would you do? Another CT bone scan? Anybody for an Axiomen scan? Yeah, so awesome. Okay. So now we have a patient with a rising PSA on Lupron. They have developed castrate-resistant prostate cancer. They get a CT abdomen pelvis and a bone scan, which are negative. The Axumen scan is also negative. So now we have non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, non-metastatic proven by both conventional imaging as well as more advanced imaging. And we're going to continue our Lupron. The patient has a PSA response in the beginning, but they start to develop uh, an elevation in their PSA over time. Their bone scan demonstrates osseous metastases, and they get a CT as well. So now they have metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Here are the uh, potential treatment options. How would you treat this patient? They've uh, failed apalutamide and failed uh, Lupron. Bone-only disease, looks like. Okay. So the patient gets palliative radiotherapy to the right ribs, and a starting on radium-223, which uh, most of our respondents responded uh, as we would treat these patient, this patient, or as we treated this patient. Here's their PSA trend going to January 2019, which is still 4.3. So now they have a recurrence of their PSA. Here's their bone scan, which looks like a Christmas tree. So now we have a progression of uh, bone, osseous metastatic disease in a patient who's been treated uh, with uh, apalutamide, radium-223, uh, and palliative radiation. Here are the options for this patient at this point. And most of you have chosen that the patient should progress on to docetaxel, um, which I think is uh, a reasonable option. I think that's what we ended up doing with this patient. And that started in March of 2019. So you come back next year, and we'll tell you how this patient has done their docetaxel. All right, so that's our first patient uh, who has uh, failed uh, multiple courses of treatment despite castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Our next patient is a bladder cancer patient. He presented in August of 14 with gross hematuria. Here's his past medical and surgical history. He gets a cysto and a transurethral resection of a bladder tumor. 
that shows a high-grade TA urothelial carcinoma. CT urogram has negative upper tracts, no evidence of metastatic disease. So you have a primary, this is high-grade high superficial disease. In the BCG um, shortage era, how would you treat this patient? What risk stratification is this one? High-grade TA? Yeah, he was high volume, so he'd be... High, so he's, he's going to uh, get considered high risk. So the majority of you would treat with BCG, which I think is how we treated this patient. Again, this was back in 2014, although even now I think we would try to give this patient full-dose BCG. He went back to the OR after BCG treatment. He had high-grade T1 urothelial carcinoma, got his induction BCG, failed, underwent a second induction course of BCG with interferon, was treated with peridium for local symptoms, and had recurrent high-grade T1 disease, which was uh, unresponsive to both BCG as well as combination BCG interferon. So what are our treatment options at this point? We have a recurrent high-grade pathologic T1 disease unresponsive to both BCG as well as BCG interferon. How old this patient was? 63. Yeah, so he was in his early 60s. So most of you chose cystectomy on this patient. I do believe that that is how we proceeded. Oh no, we tried to maintenance gemcitabine, intravesical gemcitabine. Actually, he responded to gemcitabine, was started on surveillance cystoscopy, and did have a recurrence on. TURBT of the recurrence, he had, again, high-grade pathologic T1 urothelial carcinoma. Again, we discussed management. Uh, we strongly encouraged cystectomy at this point. I believe that he declined cystectomy prior and wanted to try some type of salvage intravesical therapy. He refused cystectomy. He wanted bladder preservation, and we sent him to our uh, multidisciplinary cancer center. So what would you, how would you counsel this patient at this point? So he's got high-grade superficial disease, no muscle invasion that's proven, no evidence of metastatic disease, but it's refractory to many intravesical treatments. I don't know if I really need to show the answer to this one. I think that most of us are going to choose some type of cystectomy actually for this patient. So um, he actually received three dicles of dose dense, uh, gemcitabine and cisplatin. Uh, he must have had muscle invasive disease at that point. Uh, he was worked up metastatic uh, afterward, uh, and he was scheduled for a cystectomy neobladder after, uh, three weeks after completing the uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. His final pathology, he actually had a complete pathologic response. However, on imaging at uh, postoperatively, he did have a hepatic lesion, which was uh, identified on CT scan. 
So we sent the patient for a biopsy of the lesion, and he was noted to have uh, metastatic urothelial carcinoma to the liver, and we, remected, we recommended salvage chemotherapy at that point, which was uh, uh, a docetaxel plus a, a Patterson. No, it was a clinical trial, right? He had a mixed, mixed response to that. He did have progression in his pelvis. We performed a genomic testing on him. And uh, actually, we sent it off for foundation medicine genomic testing, so a full DNA profile on the patient. So now we have a patient who has failed uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, a clinical trial involving uh, a salvage chemotherapy. We're around 2017. So what treatment option would we consider for this patient? And think about the timing of this as well. And I do believe that this patient progressed on to uh, targeted therapy in this situation. I believe it was a clinical trial involving atezolizumab, although pembrolizumab would have been a very acceptable option as well. He actually had uh, stable disease on surveillance imaging after starting the trial, and this lasted uh, for over a year, uh, at which point he pre presented with worsening hip pain and had progression of pelvic disease on CT and bone scan. He was radiated, kept on his atezolizumab for the next two and a half years, at, uh, during which time I believe he had stable disease. So again, shows the remarkable response uh, to the checkpoint inhibitors uh, for patients with um, uh, second and third line uh, treatment for uh, metastatic uh, urothelial carcinoma of the bladder. Our last patient is a patient with renal cell carcinoma. Uh, they presented in August of 13 with left-sided abdominal pain. Here's uh, more of their HPI as well as their past medical history. Here's their actual CT scan. This patient has a horseshoe kidney, and they have a enhancing heterogeneous mass uh, located somewhere near the lower aspect or the posterior aspect of the left moiety of the horseshoe kidney, measures three, three and a half centimeters. No evidence of distant metastases. Here are the potential treatment options for this patient who at this point has local disease. That looks very central to me for percutaneous cryoablation. And certainly, um, uh, we're going to think of something extirpative. Who would take it out, or who would just take out part of it? As far as a radical nephrectomy goes, you would have to go uh, do an isthmusectomy and take out the entire moiety. However, uh, most of you chose partial nephrectomy, uh, which, is act, which is what we did. Um, this was supposed to be a partial. It was four centimeters, clear cell renal cell carcinoma, pathologic T3A disease. So now we have a patient with locally advanced disease, horseshoe kidney, a uh, single one and a half moieties of um, a uh, horseshoe kidney. And what treatment options do we have at this point? Again, you, consider, you can consider the S-TRAC uh, data or think about placing this patient on a clinical trial.
and I know uh, what we, I know what we did with this patient, but I know what we would even recommend with this patient at this point, uh, and that would either to go on a clinical trial or just observation, but uh, the S-TRAC data does report that um, you could uh, uh, go ahead and treat this patient as well. Uh, we just uh, observed the patient. He came uh, to us 11 months, um, actually was started on a clinical trial, pazopinib versus placebo, had surveillance imaging at 12 months, and had came, presented with metastinal adenopathy, metastinal adenopathy and liver metastases also around the uh, one-year follow-up. So now we have a patient who uh, progressed uh, on targeted therapy. So what are our treatment options at this point? Again, we're probably around 2017, 2018. Clinical trial, I think, is an excellent option for this patient. Uh, again, this patient was already on a targeted agent, so if we looked at the data. Uh, there is activity of um, uh, salvage-targeted agent, either sunitinib or everolimus. Certainly, you can consider uh, nivolumab, uh, which is uh, the, one of the checkpoint inhibitors, uh, which also shows significant activity in patients who have uh, recurrence after a tyrosine kinase inhibitor or high-dose IL-2, which is something that we also administer uh, at our institution. So this patient elected for salvage-targeted therapy, which was uh, exitinib and an experimental agent uh, on clinical trial. This was a, uh, a trial targeting uh, second-line treatment for metastatic uh, renal cell carcinoma. They actually progressed through this, so now they've progressed through two tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, the first one being uh, pazopinib and then exitinib, both on clinical trial. And what happened was their liver mass initially decreased and then actually increased in size. So now this patient has failed two separate targeted agents. What would you consider at this point? So we are considering uh, third-line treatment uh, for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Clinical trial, I think, may be one of the only options. Certainly, high-dose high IL-2 could be considered in this patient, uh, depending on what their functional status was at the time. There was, uh, this was our uh, phase three clinical trial. This was nivolumab versus the Everolimus study, which I uh, demonstrated was published back in 2015. The patient was randomized to receiving uh, nivolumab. Uh, they had uh, acute central adrenal insufficiency, again, one of these side effects that is very particular uh, to patients on immunotherapy. They were treated with replacement cortisol, and otherwise they felt great while taking the nivolumab, uh, and however, they did eventually progress uh, after uh, approximately one year with METs in their liver, lymph nodes, um, uh, in their liver, but the lymph node metastases actually resolve. So now you have this patient on third-line treatment. They're tolerating the volumab well, and they've just progressed uh, in one area, which is the liver, 
with all other staging being negative. So, would you continue treatment? Would you observe this patient? Or would you consider resecting the liver mass? Again, that's the only site of uh, disease at this point. And I think what we did uh, was, um, well, two of you chose resect the liver mass. One would just uh, observe the patient. Uh, nobody chose continuing treatment. We actually recommended liver resection, sent them to one of our uh, surgical oncology colleagues. Uh, the pathology of the liver resection was clear cell renal cell carcinoma. The margins were actually negative. Follow-up scans on this patient is that he is now NED at six years from diagnosis. We did continue him on nivolumab, but we stopped it uh, uh, two and a half years later on, and they've been off, I'm sorry, three and a half years uh, later, and they've been off systemic therapy for uh, the last two and a half years. So again, that shows the efficacy of these agents in patients with um, uh, in second and third line treatment for metastatic disease. Okay. Thank you.